It's Ascension Sunday, and Jesus came back, or Jesus ascended on a Thursday, but you didn't want to come to church on Thursday. We're doing the Ascension today, and that's, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about is his ascension, but another angle on the ascension. And we'll be doing that from Revelation chapter 5, and I really encourage you to open your Bible to Revelation 5, and we'll look at that together. And as you turn there, let me pray. We thank you, Almighty God, for your word, for the gift of life that comes through it, and for all the other gifts that pour out to us through your good words, for the justice that comes to set things right within us and in our world. We trust you, Lord, by the power of your spirit to work in us now, that we would receive your word with glad hearts and we would be empowered to go out and live it faithfully. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this wonderful space that we're in is a blessing, and it's a blessing in part because it's it's sacramental. It is an outward and visible sign of glory that's yet to come when we meet our Lord face to face. This is something symbolic that points us to where we're headed um, when we are with him, when we're home with the Lord. It's kind of a sneak peek, if you will. And that's very similar to Revelation 5 that we have read and we're going to be talking about now And um, this passage in Revelation 5 is what I call another angle on Jesus' ascension. Usually we think about the ascension um, from the ground. Jesus ascended. That's why we call it the ascension, right? And we think about uh, his ascension from the disciples' perspective. Revelation 5 thinks about the ascension from a very different perspective, from heaven's throne room. Jesus went there. They were waiting for him. Um, And this provides this new angle on it for us. For all the angels and the archangels and the host of heaven were waiting. What we call the ascension for them was the return of the king. They were waiting for him to come. We're not the first ones to wait for the return of Christ, are we? They were waiting, and in fact, when Jesus returned for them was when our wait for the return of Christ began. You remember how the Nicene Creed puts it, we'll say this in a few minutes, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and then he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will then have no end. And on that future day, Heaven and earth will become one, and what we see when we're gathered here together is a foretaste of what will happen forever then. What we see in Revelation 4 and 5 is also a kind of sneak peek of where we're headed, when all who follow Jesus will be able to gather around the throne of God and to be able to see him face to face and be with him forever. It's going to be wonderful. That's what we believe about the future. It's really very different from what other religions teach about the future. And it's worth comparing from time to time. The other day, I had the opportunity to go to the Mormon temple in Washington, D.C. and to uh, get a glimpse of what they believe about the future. 
Um, every 40 years or so, they deconsecrate their temples to get a facelift. And uh, they, they give them new paint job, they'll change some of the rooms around, get new furniture, and then before they reconsecrate the temple, they let Gentiles like me come in and have a look at uh, what's going on inside. And it's very, very interesting to, to visit the Mormon temple in Washington um, to see what's going on in there, and particularly their view of heaven. <clears throat> they told us as we toured, we would work our way from the ground up seven floors to get to the very top, and at the top is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, they said many times to us on the tour, the Holy of Holies is the closest place that you can get to heaven on earth. It is the best glimpse of eternity with God. So they built it up quite a bit, and we were excited as we went floor by floor up through the temple to get to the top, and they gave us a lot of of uh, insight into what they believe about, about um, who can be in heaven. A lot of emphasis on their moral teachings about, um, about austerity, about giving up, nicotine, caffeine, um, alcohol, and so on. They, there was a lot of emphasis on moral purity in order to be there in the Holy of Holies. When we got there, I was sorely disappointed, let me tell you. Um, after all of this buildup, it is essentially a Marriott hotel lobby. It has sofas, it has stuffed chairs, it has coffee tables, some mirrors here and there, great chandeliers. They told us before we went in that we could have two minutes inside. We were not allowed to speak inside at all. We just could go in and sit and get this foretaste of heaven. Let me tell you, two minutes in that room was more than enough <laughs> for me. No music, no art, no food, no drink, no crossword puzzles, no Legos, no ESPN. <laughs> it was zero degrees Kelvin. I mean, it was where life comes to a full stop. Just sit in an eternal waiting room. What a terrible, terrible place to end up. Can you imagine after living your whole life doing all of these things, seeking the austerity of Mormon practice, to finally get to this place and to be frozen in a waiting room, a Marriott hotel lobby forever? What a horrible view of the future. Christian view of the future is totally different. It's, it's wonderful. It is a party. This is what the Bible teaches. Eternal life is not zero degrees Kelvin in an austere hotel lobby. It's a great feast to end all feasts. That's what John describes at the end of Revelation. He talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And from all that we can tell in reading the scriptures there and throughout the Bible, where we're headed is this feast to end all feasts, literally. It's going to be great. There's going to be eating and drinking and singing and dancing and laughter that will give way to tears of relief and joy. When Christ comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, every last thing that is broken will be set right forever. And there's going to be this wonderful party. And then we will rule together with our Lord forever. 
for his kingdom will have no end. This is our certain future for those of us who follow Jesus. This is where we're headed. But you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> and Ascension Day is where things start. Just like um, here, St. Joseph the Carpenter Anglican Church started <laughs> um, some 12 years ago with the cooks and the goods and the ditos. And, um, and I was coming out from D.C. and we were able to, to get Aubrey and his family to come and go on some dates with these other families and they decided to get married and here's this wonderful church that's grown up over the past 12 years. In the same way, this kingdom of God that we're headed towards had to start somewhere and the day that it starts officially is with the ascension of Jesus. This is inauguration day. This is when he is seated as king and we get a glimpse into this in Revelation chapter five. So I, I, I hope that you're turned there. I wanna look at it verse by verse. Um, and, and it is not this austere waiting room. What we see in heaven is actually something that is Aubrey's worst nightmare. It is a worship service that has stalled out. <laughs> it is a service that was going good, and then somebody who was supposed to do something didn't show up. <laughs> and uh, your guest speaker didn't come. Oh, well, what are we going to do now? <laughs> um, it's, that's what's happening here in Revelation chapter 5. God the Father holds a scroll. Do you see it? And I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming. I think all the angels are strong, by the way. But I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. It's a worship service in progress. The liturgy has begun, and yet no one can read the lesson. They're stuck. They're stalled. And so, verse 4, John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Sad for John, isn't it? We, I guess with him, you weep, I weep. It's, when he's sad, we feel sad too. Well, what's the big deal, John? It's just a worship service. Come on. Actually, we so underestimate the significance and the power of worship. And what scripture shows us is such a different take on it because what happens in worship changes the world. This worship is not just something that happens hidden away in a church somewhere. Worship leads to war. That's what's happening here in this worship service. The heavenly court is both the true temple of God where true worship happens, it's also the cosmic situation room where God's word is declared and it's put into motion. And so the tragedy of Revelation 5, where we pick up the story, is that this, this worship service has stalled out and that means that justice is delayed. Do you see? Because the worship service has ground to a halt, so has the war room. The heavenly hosts, the armies of the Lord, <clears throat> are waiting to hear God's word and then to put it into action. But no one is worthy to open the scroll and to read it. 
So until God's word is read, justice won't be enacted. Closest analogy I can offer is this rookie mistake that every minister makes in their first or second wedding. Uh, You know that the wedding is supposed to start at a certain time, let's say four o'clock. I've gotten, uh, as the minister, the invitation to come to the wedding. I'm leading the wedding. We talked about it. We know that it starts at four o'clock. And so at four o'clock, I walk out, stand up front, got the groom beside me, got the groomsman beside him, and we're waiting and over here, they start playing Pachelbel's Canon for the 10,000th time. You've all heard it. And it begins, and nobody comes through the doors. And they play it over and over and over again. Da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, Lord, if Pachelbel is in heaven, <laughs> I'm going to kill that guy. <clears throat> And, and you wait and wait and wait. And it's not just a worship service that's gone wrong, is it? Because a, a wedding is a worship service, of course, but it's a worship service in which two people also happen to get married. And it's super important that this worship service happens so that they can get on with their lives. That's the way we have to think about worship all the time, actually. And that's the way we should think about this worship service in Revelation chapter 5, that there is worship going on, and if the reader doesn't show up and read God's word, then justice isn't going to be enacted. And that's why John is weeping. That's why he is so sad. He's waiting, waiting for the reader. John recorded this vision around the time of the first great persecution of the church under the Roman emperor Nero. Nero um, was, was persecuting the Christians. Rome had burned for six days. Nero blamed the Christians. And so there are already a great many martyrs in Rome and then throughout the empire. And so John himself is in exile as he writes this vision. He's in exile. Why? Because of the testimony, his testimony for Jesus. And John saw this scroll and he hoped that it would mean justice for the people of God. That's why he wanted it to be opened and read. And and so he's weeping a lot like the lament in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long must we wait? I know that you know how he feels. All you have to do is to turn on the news right now. How long, O Lord, will there be war in Ukraine? How long, O Lord, will people walk into grocery stores and churches and schools and shoot people in these places? How long, O Lord, will there be corruption in the church and people abused by ministers? All in in our newspaper right now. How long? This is the way that John is feeling Thankfully, though, for John, um, it's Ascension Day. That's when his vision is happening. So he doesn't have long to wait. And in verse 5, one of the angelic elders says, don't cry anymore. Look at the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the Messiah Jesus he's talking about, the one who conquered sin on the cross, who conquered death when he rose again and who now has ascended. He's like the Neil Armstrong of heaven. He has, he's the first man to enter in and to join 
um, the heavenly throne. When John saw Jesus, though, he's no longer the lion. Well, he's still the lion, but he sees him as a lamb, a lamb who has suffered. Verse 6, this lion is also the sacrificial lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Sevenfold gifts of the Father to his risen Son. And this is the beginning of a lot of gift giving that happens in this worship service because this always happens when we gather for worship. We bring gifts to God and God gives gifts to us. That's happening in this service too. Jesus has just come. He's arrived and he's already being given gifts. He's also bringing gifts as we're about to see. And the the first thing that Jesus does though, verse 8, is he takes possession of the scroll. And this is really the inaugural event. This is when he begins to reign. Huge symbolic importance for Jesus at this time of the ascension. Again, we're looking at it from this other angle. Jesus has arrived at the throne room. He is worthy. He takes the scroll. He he begins to unroll and read it. And this, this is so important because every king before him in the lineage of David, going all the way back to David himself, failed to read God's word and to put it into practice in one way or another. And so this is going to be the transformative act that Jesus does to set things right. Here is a king who doesn't just hold God's word as a talisman and wave it around, but actually opens it up and reads it, puts it in his heart, proclaims it, and puts it into action. This is what Jesus has come to do. Beware those who wave it as a symbol and who don't live in conformity to what it says. The primary responsibility of a Christian leader is to read God's word, hide it in his heart, meditate on it day and night, and then he will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water. And in Jesus' case, takes possession of the scroll, and then from this other angle on the ascension, this is the moment of accession to the throne. He now holds the word of God. He is worthy to open and read it, and enact it. And so now the kingdom of God is finally at hand. The rest of Revelation chapter 5 is like this, this, this action of Jesus taking the scroll is like a pebble thrown in the, in the pond and all of these ripples coming out from it. And so the first ripple is the 24 elders falling down in worship. And then something new begins to happen in the liturgy of heaven. It's not the same old that happens all the time. They're they're coming up with new stuff, and these guys have come up with a new song. Um, They go from holy, holy, holy uh, to, in verse 9, a new song that they've written. And we're going to look at that in a second. Let me tell you, um, for the last five or six years, our congregation has had uh, a close relationship with some Muslim families, the Syrian refugees who've been deposited in the D.C. area by our government, and um, they have needed everything, and we have had the privilege of being able to care for them. And we've talked a lot with them about the difference between Islam and Christianity. And, and in addition to all of the theological differences, there's also a very practical difference that I've noticed, and that is they don't ever sing. They don't ever sing. There's no, there's no part of their worship, from what I can tell, where there's singing. For us, I mean, it is right at the heart of what we do, isn't it? Singing is so important for Christians. I couldn't wait for the pandemic to end or at least 
get over the worst part of it so that we could get back together and start singing together, particularly with the masks off, because it's so essential to who I am as a Christian. And it's also the same way in the heavenly court. That's a good sign. It means we're going to keep on doing it. And for those of us who don't sing on key, we're probably going to be able to do that once we get to, to be with the Lord face to face. So anyways, um, the angels were so excited to sing, and they had a new song, and this new song has three important parts to it. And here's really, I think, at the heart of what's going on in this chapter today. They're, they're saying, worthy is the Lamb, and why is he worthy? For three reasons, because of what he accomplished on the cross, because of who he ransomed, and what his gift will do. Do you see it, verse nine? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is he worthy? First of all, because of what he accomplished on the cross. Through his death, he took captivity captive, paying our ransom, buying us back from slavery to sin and death, and to present us as a gift to God the Father. Like pretty much every Middle Eastern friend I've ever met, Jesus comes with gifts. All of my Syrian friends, when they come to my house or, or wherever we see them, they always have you know, falafels or um, stuffed grape leaves or something. They're bringing us treasures from, from, from what they can offer. And Jesus is a Middle Eastern king. <laughs> and he brings gifts. And uh, he never goes anywhere empty-handed. He always brings gifts, even when he goes to see his Father in heaven. So in this case, the gift that Jesus brings is what he accomplished through his sacrificial death, namely all of those whom he ransomed from death. That's the first reason he's worthy. The second reason he's worthy is because of who he ransomed. He ransomed people from everywhere, all different kinds of people, tribes and language, people, ethnicities. There's no room for racism in the church whatsoever because Jesus purchased by his blood all kinds of people from every different background. And all of our hues, all of our languages, we constitute Jesus's gift to the Father in all of this diversity. And then thirdly, the lamb is worthy because of what his gift will do. After centuries of chaos and injustice, time is running out for the rulers of the earth. The Lord has triumphed on the cross. He has ransomed people from every possible background so that they might be for our God, a kingdom and priests to reign on the earth. Now, why does Jesus need people from all of these different countries and all of these different languages to be on his team to rule over the earth? Why do you think? Same reason that Amazon does, same reason that Apple does, same reason that Google does, why are all of these corporations adding people from every country, every, every uh, language, and so on? Because they want to rule the earth, right? <laughs> and you, if you're going to rule the earth, you have to have people everywhere. Same thing with Jesus. His plan is going to work, though. So if you can invest in his plan, <laughs> you'll really be rich. That's where to put your money. Um, in verse 11... Because of this great gift that Jesus brings to the Father, Jesus, in turn, receives his reward. 
Let's look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a lot. A myriad is 10,000. It's like hundreds of millions we're talking about of angels, hundreds of millions, and they are presenting him now with a sevenfold gift in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, count it, to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And rightly so. Well done, Jesus. A fitting reward. Well deserved. But listen, these trophies are not gifts to be put on the shelf. They're not just for Jesus to put behind him on the throne. Gifts in the Bible are for use. Just like in Narnia, right? When Father Christmas comes to the children in Narnia during the reign of the White Witch, um, he brings gifts for war. He brings gifts to be used. Same thing. Jesus comes. He's got gifts. His gifts aren't to be put on the shelf. They're gifts for war. They're gifts to be put into, uh, into use for the sake of the kingdom. He's a Middle Eastern bridegroom. He never goes anywhere empty-handed. He is with us always. He's always got gifts to share. So here's the thing to think about this morning. You're about to be sent out. You're going to be fed and then sent out into the world as an ambassador for the king. The king is reigning now. Jesus, the one true king. You're about to be sent out in his authority as his ambassador. What do you need What do you need to go out and do this work for him? Whatever you need, he's got it. Whatever you need, he's got it. Let's say you're feeling especially powerless. As an ambassador of Jesus, maybe you want to stand and take courage for him against evil at work or at school or in the neighborhood. But you feel tiny in relation to the great evil that's at work. Ask him for power. Ask him for power. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, and he generously shares it with his people. Maybe you lack resources to follow Jesus in mission. Maybe you lack the wisdom to know how to do it. Great news. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive wealth and wisdom. He's got what you need. And he generously shares it. He loves to share it with his people. Whatever you need to follow him, he's got it. He loves to share these gifts. You just have to ask him. And that's, that's one of the main reasons we gather in worship, isn't it? We bring him gifts. We receive from him. We receive bread and wine. And in that, there's the, the, the symbolism of him empowering us with everything that we need. We are being filled and sent out in his power and wisdom, his wealth, and so on. Just one more illustration and then I'm done. Uh, During the pandemic, when we were prohibited from indoor gatherings in the city of Washington, um, uh, we decided we were gonna have church outside in, in Lincoln Park on Capitol Hill. And Lincoln Park is one of the many parks in DC that is owned not by DC city, but by the National Park Service. 
And so in order to have Eucharist in the park, I had to go down to the National Park Service office and file a, 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 a form in order to have a permit to meet there. And uh, I wanted to file it as a, as a picnic. I mean, it's communion. It's just a kind of quaint little Anglican service that we were gonna do. We're not gonna bother anybody. And so it's bread and wine. Let's just call it a picnic, right? They said, you can't do that. They said, by the way, picnic costs $125, but this other permit that you actually need is free. I said, sounds great, what is that one? They said, it's a First Amendment demonstration. I said, whoa, <laughs> no way, that's not, that's not what we're doing, huh? We're just having this quaint little, it's, it's an archaic kind of angle, we just sing some songs, bread and wine, Sorry, you need to file a First Amendment demonstration permit. Here it is. And so I had to fill it out and I had to turn it in. And as I did so, I began to feel rebuked, rightly rebuked by these people. A little bit of shame for not understanding and believing the core theology of what we do. It's not a quaint little thing. It is a powerful thing that we do. And it is a First Amendment demonstration because we are gathering, rallied around King Jesus, a different politic in a city that doesn't know its right hand from its left, a city that worships false gods and worships um, ungodly kings. We gathered around Jesus at his table to give to him and to receive gifts from him in order that we might be empowered as his ambassadors in the city of Washington. That's why we're here. That's why we're here today. It's a First Amendment demonstration. It's what we're gathered for. And I hope that as you come to the table now, that you will come to receive whatever it is that you need, that he will empower you for the work of ministry that he's called you to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>